Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. This is Ronald Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this beautiful Thursday morning in the nation's capital. And we have with us this morning Mr. Steve Dubb. Steve, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good, Vernon, and thanks for inviting me to be on this show. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming on again. I've always enjoyed our conversation. And you have a new job now. What are you doing these days? Well, these days I, I moved from my beloved uh, Washington, D.C. up to Boston, um, and uh, I'm working as a senior editor at uh, Nonprofit Quarterly, which is one of the three leading publications in the in the field of nonprofits and philanthropy. And we have about 50,000 list subscribers, and while we're called a quarterly, we also uh, publish daily, you know, five days a week, we do an electronic newsletter. So a lot of my work is about curating conversations that are happening in the nonprofit sector, and, and that's about 10% of the U.S. economy. You know, about, about one in 10 people that works in the United States works for a nonprofit. So it's a, it's a weighty responsibility, and uh, hopefully we're, you know, building conversations where they need to be had in the sector, particularly in areas where uh, we're stuck as a sector and, and frankly, as, as a society. So nonprofits represent 10% of the U.S. economy. Yeah, they do. Um, you know, the, the independent sector and Urban Institute published the figures. And in terms of – so it depends on how you measure. So in terms of uh, gross domestic product, it's smaller because some, sometimes you have to do double counting. You know, if somebody donates to a nonprofit, that counts as individual income, not nonprofit income, for example. But in terms of revenue, you're talking about, you know, numbers on the order of $1.7 trillion in an $18 trillion economy. So that's close to 10 percent, yeah. When you say economy, what do you mean? Well, you know, um, so the economy is, in essence, the way we produce, consume, and allocate resources in society. The root of the word, you know, comes from oikos, uh, which is a Greek word that means household. So it's managing your household. Only with an economy, you're not talking about your family household. You're actually talking about the the collective household of over 300 million people in the case of the United States. So it's mainly based on sort of like money or income when you talk about the economy, how much, and you say GDP is how much is produced in an economy. Is that Yeah. Gross domestic product is sort of the is is the conventional uh, measure of the economy, obviously. We could spend the entire hour talking about the problem with doing that. So, um, you know, some very basic things, you know, like if, if I clean my own house, that doesn't count towards gross domestic product. But if I clean, clean your house and you pay me and you clean my house and I pay you, we've just increased the gross domestic product and we haven't changed the value of the economy in sense. So there are problems with um, – and then, you know, if you pollute the economy and have to clean it up, that also contributes to, to that financial number 
contribute to quality of life, obviously. So there are plenty of problems with the measure of gross domestic product, and there are folks who spend a lot of time trying to think of more complete measures. There is something the United Nations has that's called the Human Development Index, which is somewhat better. What, what but, is it called again? Uh, but what is it called? The Human Development Index, and it tries to take into account not just the gross domestic product of society, but, you know, life expectancy, uh, gender equality, racial equality, those kind of things that are left out of that GDP figure. Um, so there, there are better measures. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done in, in, in that area. But, but to answer your original question, sort of the, in the conventional sense, yeah, GDP is the conventional measure of, of economic value with, with all its faults. Okay, the reason I went there, because we talk a lot about the economy without necessarily describing what this is that we're measuring. And so I wanted to start there with the definition of what you mean, because you wrote a paper saying the economy is changing. Yeah. Um, and so I want to delve into that a little bit, but I first wanted to know what do you mean by economy. And I also like this, the economy, as it talks about money, does not relate to quality of life. And not necessarily. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I know. Sure. It do, I, I, I'm declaring it does not for <laughs> for the masses of people because you know, being a mathematician, it's, it's like most of the time we talk about GDP. That's the average amount of income for everybody. But then some people make more than others. So some people make zero dollars, and other people may make billions of dollars in a year or millions of dollars in a year. And so they'll average that all out. But when you start measuring the quality of life for everybody, you see that people in the lower end of the economic structure, quality of life may be poor in terms of housing and food and education and health care. It may be awful. So that's why I like well, that, some of these other measures. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's also the case, and this is something I, I cover a lot in that article, you know, to your point, the, the level of inequality, so the, the, the concentration of income at the top, the concentration of wealth at the top in the United States is, you know, at record levels. And so, for example, in the last decade, the share of income that goes to working people uh, has dropped by four percentage points. And Wait, wait a minute. Let me, get you know, let, me, let me make sure I understand what you said. In the last 10 years, last decade. Yeah. What's dropped by 4%? The share of national income to working people has dropped by 4 percentage points, not 4%. So that's more than 4%. You know, and what that means is, you know, what is 4% of national income? You, you average that out, and that's more than $5,000 per working person. That's a huge, you know, in other words, if you had, if the percentage of income the working people had stayed the same over the last decade, people would be make, taking home five thousand dollars a year more. So so that, know, be, so that's as there are taxes and stuff, but you know, but that's 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 a that's a shift that's happened in pretty recent times. And you know, it was commented on just this past Tuesday by the chair of the Federal Reserve Board, who calls the decline in income going to working people precipitous. You know, precipitous decline, right? So, you know, we're not making this up. This is from Bureau of Labor Standard, you know, U.S. Department of Commerce Statistics, right? So let me, um, let me, let me understand this, Steve. What, what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that as productivity has increased, right. 
working people take home less money. So production has increased, but the amount of money that the working people take home is much less. Yeah, I mean, the, it's probably stayed as a dollar amount, adjusting for inflation close to even. But the, what's happened is all the gains of that productivity have gone to a very small percentage of the population. And if you look at, you know, wealth, for example, the Forbes 400 list of wealthiest Americans, right? The last time that list went out, you know, $2.7 trillion from 400 families, that's $6.75 billion, with a B, per family uh, as an average. And that's more wealth than uh, the bottom 40% of the U.S. population have combined. Um, so in other words, 400 people versus $120 million. That's the kind of, of uh, inequality that we have. And, it, uh, you know, I used to work with uh, Gar Alperbis, you know, and, you know, he was he would say that was a medieval number. And and then, you know, he was doing a book tour and somebody was a medieval historian in the audience. He said, you know, it, I, I have to object because the level of inequality was never that bad in the Middle Ages. Hmm. So so. I want to get this level to make sure I understand it and people out there listening understand because you're yeah. throwing away, throwing out numbers here. And I got 400 <laughs> wealthiest people, Forbes 400 wealthiest people. They have income of $2.7 trillion. Wealth. Wealth. Asset. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Assets yeah. of 2.7. And that's about $6.75 billion per family, 400 families. I don't even know what you know, that looks the, like. Six point seven five billion. That's nine zeros or something like that. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of zeros. So yeah, it's six point seven five billion. So that's six thousand seven hundred fifty million. You know, that's that's a, a huge number. And that's so more most, than what the bottom forty percent of Americans own. That is correct. So that forty percent is about one hundred twenty million people. That's right. So these 400 families own more wealth, and that wealth is in houses and stocks and bonds and, I don't know, paintings, whatever they carry this wealth in. They they have all of this wealth, much more than 120 million people. That's I wanted to bring that out because that's sort of staggering. That's, that's, I don't think a lot of people get it. I mean, it's... It's hard to get. It's hard to put your fingers around that 400 people. Yeah, no, it is because the numbers are so huge, and it's it's really hard to to to, to like mentally picture it. And you know, there have been studies that show that most people in the United States get that the distribution of wealth and income in the United States is unequal. And and most surveys say that people want it to be more equal. But when 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 folks are asked to map it. They map a pretty unequal distribution, but it's nowhere close to how unequal it actually is. And how do you map it? Well, you can – so, like, you, what you do is you, you, like, say, how much does the top 20% have? And maybe people say 40%, but it's actually 50 You know what I mean? Okay. So – and people say it should be 30%. You know, so that that's I'm, – I'm making up those numbers, but that's the kind of studies that have been done. Okay. Okay. So this wealth distribution is way out of line. Okay, the scales are way tip, mm. and I have a hard time getting. That's why I say that, that's why because I have a hard time getting how big a gap this is that most people won't get it. And I'm I got a master's in math, so 
I have a sense of numbers, but it's just like it's hard to understand this $6.75 billion that the, that's what the average wealth of 400 people in the U.S. have. But to me, Steve, what's more striking is that every year they get more of the wealth that's generated and the people in the bottom get less. That's the piece that really bothers Yeah, the, the arrows are completely in the wrong direction. And you don't have to take my word for it. You have to, you know, uh, a Trump appointee, the chair of the Federal Reserve, saying that things are going in the wrong direction. He said it, you know, in public testimony to the U.S. Senate uh, Banking Committee on Tuesday this week. So we so know we, this is a huge problem. Well, we've got to take our first break, Steve. We'll be we'll be right back. And I want to we talk about the problem this section. You may want to get more into it the next one, but I'd really like to talk about like how do we get here and and how deep is this hole but we'll be right back please don't touch that dial washington dc's news talk 1450 a.m w-o-n-9-5-9-f-n welcome back everybody this is vernon oaks uh everything cooperative is the show and mr steve dub who's a senior editor at non-profit quarterly is our guest today you know, Steve, uh, the National Co-op Bank is, our, is a sponsor of this program, and their mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So that sort of fits into this conversation of looking at the folks at the bottom, the low-income communities, which you will find a lot of black, brown, Native Americans in, this, in those low-income communities. And they're the ones that have very little assets, or we are, since I'm brown, we have very little assets. In your mm-hmm. paper, you're talking about the economy is changing. And I, what I found interesting, you said it's, it looks like it may collapse. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that the, uh, you know, it's not stable when you have sort of an inverted pyramid with so much wealth at the top and so many people living in difficult economic circumstances, you know, in the middle and the bottom. And that, that is the situation that we have, um, you know, from a straight economic standpoint, of course, you know, there's a need for people to buy the products that companies produce. And if the income is too unequal, that becomes difficult to do. I think in addition, you know, I, I don't know how much we want to go into it, but there's, you know, a number of factors that, that speak to the instability of the United States um, as a society. And, and certainly, you know, this, we'll just say, rise in prominence of white supremacy and white uh, nationalism, it's, it's always been there. It's always been part of the U.S. system. But, it, you know, the um, you know, basic denial by, unfortunately, a significant part, part of this, uh, of the U.S. population, that in essence doesn't accept people of color as, as full citizens in the United States. That's that's part of the political struggle that's going on. That's part of what led uh, not just to the uh, presidential election of Trump, but of course to congressional majorities that support those kind of policies. And, you know, not only is that immoral, uh, which it certainly is, but it's also uh, highly unstable for a society that's going to be majority people of color. And not too long time. Um, you know, most census figures point the number at around you know, the year 2040 when, when this country becomes majority people of color. That's only, you know, 25 years out or so, right? 
And then you can add to that other challenges that are environmental in nature. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that the um, that the current political economic system in the United States is not terribly stable. Okay, so you state in here that if the current political and economic system are corrupt, decaying, or even collapsing, then plugging holes is not a way of doing it. It won't it won't solve the problem, and and it, the system will fail. Plugging the holes by nonprofits and cooperatives won't won't get it. And right. I agree with you. And I, in the studio today with me is my grandson, Trenton, who's here, so he's listening. So I just did Hello. a number. Yeah, he can't, he can't speak. I don't have it where he's set up. He can speak, but he can hear you. <laughs> but at 14 and 25 years, he'll be 39, a young yeah. man. And in 25 years, I'll be 96. So uh, maybe I'll still be here. But in 2040, you're going to have more brown, black, folks in the U.S. and whites. What would that economy look like with white supremacy showing its ugly head again? Yeah, there will be constant clashes if the police continue to do what they're doing. Um, if you have the Donald Trumps of the world and the political system and the House uh, and the Senate won't combat him with all that he does and says, yeah, I guess it is. I never thought about it. I, never, I, I guess people don't want to think that we might collapse one day that our economy may fall. I mean, it did in the 20s and 30s with the Great Depression. Right. And, you know, the somewhat positive thing is that we got through the Great Depression. But, you know, uh, success is never guaranteed. You know, so we're at a finding moment, really, in the history of our country and our society. And, and we have a pretty stark choice to make. So, you know, we certainly have seen examples across the world of uh, white supremacy system being maintained even as whites became a minority. Certainly that was the case in, in South Africa for more than a generation, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that's possible and that's scary, <laughs> but it's not impossible and we can't think it's impossible. And and so that's part of the role, I think, of a, of, you know, a civil society is to refuse to go in that direction. And, and that's why I think uh, a fairly robust uh, democratic response, I'm, I'm saying small D democratic, not necessarily a democratic party, but, you know, there was some figures recently that suggest that more than one in five Americans has participated in political activity since uh, the beginning of 2017. That compares to Since Donald Trump percent. got elected, I got you. Took off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. One in five Americans have protested, <laughs> have got out in the streets, starting with the women's protests. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly right. You know, compared to less than one in 20 who showed up at either a Clinton or a, a Trump rally in 2015. So that's four times as many people. So that's important. And it needs to be, you know, there, there's a whole community organizing piece, a whole institution building piece, whole system building piece that needs to be engaged in for that impulse to actually be, you know, actually start changing these patterns, uh, which, you know, are entrenched. And, and we know that inequality has gotten worse in the last few decades. So, you know, changing that for a society is not a simple thing. It's going to require a lot of different activities. And as I said, not just the protests, although those are important, but also building from the bottom up, you know, democratic alternatives. So one in five Americans have demonstrated since Trump took 
took office in 2017, compared to one in 20 uh, that came out during um, his campaigns or before. So, okay, so four times more people are getting out and demonstrating, and that's the impulse. That's the, okay, he's in, and there's this white supremacy, and it's showing his ugly head. Let's get out and yell, scream, talk, protest. But what I hear you saying is what we've got to do is organize the communities, get institutions in place, and build systems such that the South Africa won't happen in the U.S., where whites stay in power and they stay in control over the majority of the black and brown folk. Yeah, or, or at least we dismantle. <laughs> I mean, it's, a little, it's, a, it's a little late to say South Africa won't happen in the U.S. in a sense because, I mean, in the sense of a minority, yes, but obviously there was a whole history. And, you know, South Africa actually learned their apartheid system from the Jim Crow South. So, you know, this is part of white supremacy is endemic to, to U.S. history. So rooting that out, finally. It's one way I would put it. So Jim Crow, white supremacy, and you talk about the slaves in the 1860s. Yeah. And I can take my family back that far. That's about as far Mm -hmm. as I can take it back. We're worth $3.5 billion. And that was the highest asset back in the 1860s were whites owning black folk. That was the number one asset. That's right. Yeah, it was more than the value of the railroads. It was a lot of money back then. Okay. And this ongoing, this impact of slavery, Jim Crow and everything, this ongoing discrimination is what's partly caused, if not majority reason, why you have this big gap in income and wealth. It certainly is, is a major contributing factor, absolutely, for, for all sorts of reasons, both directly and indirectly. Indirectly because it has weakened the strengths of institutions that could check that inequality, whether that be unions or, you know, getting back to the subject of the show, co-ops, right? Um, and I know you've had Jessica Gordon-Empart on your show, and, and she documents quite clearly, you know, how co-ops uh, that were formed in black communities were often even burnt to the ground in some cases, right? But, you know, faced, you know, significant repression. Yeah, the, the whites did not want to see blacks get assets and get power in any kind of sense in the community. So, yeah, they would just take over. We have to take our second break, and so we'll come back and get some more and try to look at the future of what we can do. Because <laughs> this is depressing. <laughs> we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. This is this is very depressing looking at this history, mm. and I'm I'm glad you have come on to talk about it and you do the research about it. And folks can go to your webpage. What is your webpage, and where can they get this article so that you wrote? You can go to nonprofit quarterly. That's all one word. dot org. And right now, I think there's a link to the series. We're going to be launching a, a webinar series on topics. And on the question of what can be done in different areas in the fall. So uh, so it's featured right now. And we have a tag that's rebuild the economy. So if you go later, you just go to nonprofit.org, quarterly.org, and then, you know, in the search engine that's on the site, just put in rebuild the economy. 
right. So let's talk about the nonprofit sector. How has it come into play and what does it do in this sort of to bridge this gap between the haves and the have nots and solving the problems of, of the quality of life for people? Yeah, so um, so part of what I, I talked about in, in the article was how the nonprofit sectors have has, has grown really rapidly. So this is both a, a you know a, a good thing and it creates some challenges. But you know, as a percentage of gross domestic product, it was less than one percent of the economy at the end of World War II. And now in terms of a direct percentage of the economy, about five and a half percent, so about six times as much. So growing six times the rate of the overall economy. And, you know, the reason that is, is in part because other institutions like labor unions uh, have declined and nonprofits have become a preferred way of social provision. So government funds is the leading funder for these nonprofits. We, we think of nonprofits as being primarily supported by individual donations. Certainly those are incredibly important, but the leading fund, of course, is actually government itself as well as, you know, direct income, like, you know, if you're paying at a nonprofit hospital, you get the bill that's paid individually or, or tuition at a university, right? So that's that's the source of the growth of nonprofits. And what they've been able to do is develop a lot of programs that have helped a lot of people. Steve, before, and, you, before and, you go further, let me get what, – what I heard you say, that the labor unions have gone down and the nonprofits have come up. What caused the That's labor right. unions to go down, and and how far have they gone down? Sure. So labor unions were about, at the end of World War II, about 35% of the labor force in the private sector was unionized. And today, unions as a percentage of the labor force are 10.7%, and of the, non, of the private sector, it's about 6.5%. So that's a, that's a major drop. You know, from 35% to 6.5% in the private sector. And the why is complicated, but, but they were politically attacked, certainly, and, and laws were passed to make it harder for unions to thrive. And also, of course, the economy shifted. So some of the industries where labor was, was strongest have declined. Uh, for example, in auto, the River Rouge factory in Michigan used to employ 100,000 people. The number of people who now work in auto factories in all GM and Ford plants combined in the U.S. is about 100,000 a day. So from one plant employing 100,000 to two companies, General Motors and Ford combined having 100,000 production workers, that's quite a shift. And because of laws that, that restrain unions and make it more difficult for unions to organize, they have not been successful in many cases in organizing the new sectors that have arisen. So that's the... the distinct explanation. Uh, you know, again, that could be its own program. But Okay. Let me, let me ask, yeah. ask you this because I've been accused of being cynical on this program as I talk about some of these things. But I have it that 1%, those wealthy folks, they pay politicians through Citizens United. They pay and they get politicians. And then those politicians create policies that help them to get more money. And part of that would be with this constant struggle between labor and the lords or the dons or whatever they call the capitalists. This constant struggle is how to keep labor down so that they don't make as much money 
and get the dons to come up. Is that a part of what's happened or is that the main cause? Because I think that's the main cause of what's going on here. It's certainly a leading cause. You know, I, I don't want to discount shifts of sectors and and globalization, but of, of course there's um, there's always been a uh, struggle over resources between those who own and those who work for those who own, right? That, mm-hmm. that would be hard to deny. <laughs> and right now those who own have been winning and, you know, co-ops, interestingly, particularly worker cooperatives, but co-ops in general are actually a way for those who don't own to own, right? So that's a strategy for trying, or it can be if we're conscious of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you could just be creating a co-op in order to get, you know, healthy food in your local neighborhood or, or housing, what have you. And I started a housing co-op. I've been on a board of a food co-op. I respect all that. But you could also have a consciousness that what part of what we're trying to do is make sure that the benefits of ownership don't just go to those, that 1%, but go to everyone. Well, that's... That's the reason I love co-ops, and that's why I do this show, and I'm glad you're bringing it out so clearly, okay? And I like your statement, those who own and those who work for those who own. Those who own have been getting the money. I think 80% of, they've had 80% increase in their in their income. They just get all of this money. They keep gathering and gathering and gathering, and it's at the expense of the laborer. Okay, so. Yeah, and there's, there's no doubt that's happening. So if you look at the, the income from the top, there's, there's both income and wealth figures, but just the income from the top that go to the top 1%. You know, when I was, I'll, I'll date myself a little bit, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, you know, the top 1% had 7 or 8% income. So that wasn't equitable, right? 7% is more than 1%. But today, the top 1% get 20% of income. So that's a huge shift. That's, you know, astonishing shift, really. Um, and that obviously means the other 99% are getting less. And as you go down, the numbers get worse. I've got to go back and look at those numbers because I had heard that the top 1% are getting 47% of every new dollar that's created. Uh, maybe new dollars. But, but well, I don't know. So if you look at total income of mm-hmm. in the United States, that's, so the, the increase is certainly going more pro- yeah, you can look at figures that will say of the growth in the economy, 80% of it has gone to the top 1%, that kind of thing. Okay. But in terms of the total economy, it's not quite that bad. The wealth is close to that. So the top 1% have at least a third of all wealth, I believe. I have to look at the numbers to be short, but something well, along is, those whatever lines. Whatever the numbers are, it's real clear. The top 1% have a huge amount of the wealth and the income and they keep getting it, and they keep passing laws that allow them to get more, whether it's tax laws or global to send their manufacturing facilities to Mexico or China or India or wherever, and they don't have to pay taxes or whatever. So the the, the whole policy is to help them make more money. Yeah. That's right. The, yeah. the, 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 the arrows are completely in the wrong direction. There's okay. no doubt about it. And the, what you brought out, and one of the things I've tried to point out on this program for the last almost five years is if, folks would create their own worker co-ops, then they own it. And when, when, and if they make a profit, they get to share that profit and they get to say where that profit goes so they can build wealth that way. I don't yeah. know any other way of doing it because there's no, this sort of sense of redistribution of wealth. So sort of how do you take money from the wealthy and then pass it to those that don't have it? I don't see that ever happening. I don't know. Yeah, it's 
So how do you? Well, I think there are there are more. There are, so worker co-ops are important, but there are a variety of mechanisms. I mean, there are ESOP companies too. Those are employee stock-owned companies that are more than 10 million people work for employee stock-owned companies. So that's significant in terms of numbers. Uh, there are uh, community land trusts. Those are nonprofits that are you know with member representation that control land ownership. That's being used. Right now, there's an effort with the 11th Street Bridge in, in D.C. to try to make sure that to protect the residents of Anacostia east of the river, right, with, by having them own the land through a community land trust. Uh, and that's being used in a lot of the communities. There are, um, you know, nonprofit social enterprises that create value in local ecosystems like the D.C. Central Kitchen. So that's not a worker co-op, but certainly a powerful tool. And then, of course, there are other types of co-ops that are, like, Consumer co-ops like the the, the NCB, the, the sponsor of this program, or uh, you know, community credit unions, for example, Housing right? Co-ops. So, yeah, all of those. Um, so there there are a lot of different institutional forms, and hopefully, part of the trick is you know, as I said, you have to have sort of this double vision. Both you're trying to do something in your community here and now that benefits people in your community. That's that's vital, and you have this vision of of piece by piece, trying to rebuild a different economy, build a different politics, uh, build supports like they have in New York City, where, where the, the co-ops actually get support from the small business department of the city to, to, um, to develop new cooperatives. So, you know, you want to both have that local perspective. This is what we're trying to do for folks in our neighborhood, because if you don't have that, it's not going to sustain itself, but also have this broader vision that we're Part of what we're trying to do is, is build a, a more democratic economy that serves serves everyone and not just the few. Well, it's a question of how do we get more people to see this and understand this and then move toward that that policy of creating co-ops and creating land trusts. And a land trust with a limited equity co-op housing is one way of keeping affordable housing mm-hmm. for eternity, if you will. So how do we get more people, both everyday people, the people that are going out there, you know, one in five have been demonstrating, how do we get them to understand these policies to get the institutions in place? So I'll resist the urge a little. Well, I'll I'll say, yeah, part of what I'm doing with with the webinar series is trying to build discussion around this. But I think the way you really do it in community is you build local you build off of local institutions that already exist. So, in other words, Jessica Gordon-Empard, who I mentioned before, talks about building local study groups. So that's important. That's one tool. But, you know, these folks who've gone together to the demonstrations, you know, maybe they, they meet for coffee afterwards and talk about what can they do in their neighborhood, you know, and take on something that, that makes sense in your neighborhood, you know. Um, so start with your community. Start looking at what you can do locally. Well, we got we have to take our final break. Uh, <laughs> and All right. We have another 12 or 13 minutes, and so we'll come back more and talk about what, what can we do, each of us do, to help solve this problem and take over control. Because if not, our economy will collapse. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. And the wealthier survive, and the rest of us will perhaps starve. But we'll be we'll be right back.
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, 95.9 FM. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and this is Steve Dubb, who's the Senior Editor of Nonprofit Quarterly, is our guest today, talking about the, the economy and how it's changing and it could change to collapse with the inequality of income and wealth. And WOL is a great partner because it just said that, you know, that information is power. And I got that it's not the information. Steve has given you, us, the information. It's what do we do with that information? The information doesn't become power until we put action to it, like strike and match Gasoline by itself doesn't work, but it's when something strikes that match, then gasoline becomes power. That information becomes power when we go into action. So, Steve, when we started, took the break, we were talking about some of the action steps that people can do so they can have power to both keep the economy from collapsing, but also how to protect communities and families. So I'd like to go back. You, you said some things very, very fast, and I was trying to write them down. I can get them all. So let's go back. What are the things that folks can do in their communities to take control of this? Yeah, so I, I think part of what needs to happen is really um, building that sense of community in some, some neighborhoods that already exist, and, and that's easier, right? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you want to make sure you, you understand the community and what are, what are the challenges, and then depending on what the challenges are, then you want to learn about the different forms of, of, of intervention, ways of using community-based ownership. of, And ownership is really critical to this, right? So a community-based ownership forms of business or land ownership to build wealth in your community and to address in a sustaining way. That's the point of owning it is that you gain, you get resources that can be reinvested, right, into addressing problems in your community. And that might be pres- preventing gentrification, it might be providing employment, it might be helping uh, youth make it through a school system that has too many holes. It could be all sorts of different things, right? So you you identify what the challenges are that you feel, you know, uh, compelled to address, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and you pick something that, that makes sense to you, you learn about it, and then you work with other folks in your community to, to devise the solutions and, you know, so I always talk about asset mapping. So there's um, a whole process called, you can look this up, called asset-based community development. But it's really looking at what are the resources within your neighborhood, the, the networks of relationships in your neighborhood that you can build on to address needs of your community. And there's a website, abcdinstitute.org. I think it's based at DePaul University. It used to be based at Northwestern, but it's a, based at Chicago University that talks that has worksheets and you know ways of, of of you know getting started, if you will. And then you know uh, once you've done that, then you've, you've chosen. Then there are resources depending on whether whether the solution is a worker co-op or a community land trust. Or, or some other type of, of enterprise. So I, I think, you know, the, the solutions flow from the problems. Uh, the other thing I think that's really important is, you know, building the, the culture of, of support within the community. Really, too many communities have been broken up, and that's, that's what allows for institutions like uh, a, a Fox News or uh, other types of, 
of uh, media to find people's quote-unquote uh, needs and wants uh, for them rather than folks determining for themselves what, what their needs and wants are. So so having community events, picnics, those kind of things, uh, you know, baseball games, uh, basketball, whatever it is, soccer, you know, so, you know, it's, it's actually those kind of like social activities actually build community cohesion and, and make it far easier to do these economic projects. So I wouldn't look at this in isolation from sports or arts or, or other ways of, of, of building a sense of community. So one one place these institution for the civil rights and you mentioned in your article was the churches, was the institution yeah, that, that that the black church was a place that folks came to that to pass the word out of what's going on and immobilize people to demonstrate or to go to their the senator seats or house or whatever. Okay, so that was the institution. So it could be churches, it could be nonprofits that could be doing this work. Who? Who else, what other groups can get people together? Schools, I guess. Schools in the early days, and in particular rural society, was the center of where, where everything took place. Yeah, I think all of those places, social clubs, except those exist. You know, it, it's wherever, you know, if people are active in politics, uh, you know, then that can matter, political clubs, right? But it's wherever people are already gathered, where you're not alone. You know, what are where where do you spend? You can think you can think about this. Where do I spend free time? You know, outside of outside of work and outside of uh, my family. Where else do I spend time? And those are no that can be, you know, sites for building community and ultimately doing organizing that leads to, you know, economic and social projects that benefit the community. Sororities and fraternities, okay, which are huge. In yeah, those, those two, absolutely. Yeah, it, it really is because if if you having to establish, because most or most good organizing ultimately is built on trust. So who do you trust? So as you're talking, it reminds me of the book that came out of Democracy Collaborative: uh, Cities Building Wealth. Mm-hmm. You talk about the steps that you have to take in order to build this wealth or to get folks together. So once these groups come together and figure out what the, what's the need of the community, then they f- then they can figure out, possibly even with politicians, what are solutions to solve those particular problems. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And um, so there's lots of resources online. And, uh, you know, my old uh, employer has that website, community-wealth.org, and, and you can certainly look there for a lot of information. Uh, we're going to be at Nonprofit Quarterly, you know, having a webinar series starting in October, and we're going to look at uh, land, uh, business ownership by, in the role of worker cooperatives. That's the second one. We're going to look at community ownership of capital, ways of, of local investing to finance local development. We'll look at universities and hospitals because they're huge parts of the fourth and fifth, you know, looking in, in the winter. Um, at the sector and how can these institutions that are technically owned by us act in our behalf. And then we're going to conclude the last two will be on policy, looking particularly at the local level and and how do you address this issue of system change. And what we're going to do for that is actually use the recovery effort in, in Puerto Rico and the role of nonprofits and community-based organizations there in building a new economy from the bottom up because they really don't have a choice. I mean, the collapse is already happened, right? Mm-hmm. 
So those are those are resources too. And uh, you know, I, I think it's important to say that we're posing the question. We're trying to promote the conversation. I would be skeptical of anybody who says, hey, I have it all figured out and here's the new system. No, that's no. not where we're at. Okay. So we're really interested in contributions from you know, people and, and, and really drawing this discussion so it's not just sort of a nonprofit quarterly, you know, preaching the converted, but really having, having a, a rich dialogue about situation, you know, strategies that might address this. But ultimately, you know, it's important to know the models, and I've spent much of my professional career developing knowledge on the models. It's also really important that this be grounded in, in, in your personal experiences. So, folks, you can go to www.nonprofitquarterly.org and get information about these upcoming events. Uh, Steve, you got about a minute. We have a minute left. What would you like to leave people with? Well, you know, I know you said a lot of this was depressing, and I and it is. On the other hand, I think more people are open to alternatives than than really ever before. And we've seen this, you know, for example, with uh, Acacia Cortez's victory in Queens. Um, a lot of folks that wouldn't have gotten a hearing before are now getting a hearing. This is a time, in part because of the common sense of crisis, it's also an opportunity to, to build a society and, and economy that actually corresponds to our professed values rather than the you know, current reality of racial stratification and economic inequality. So you know, we are at a point where alternatives are possible, and you know, the, the hard work is ahead of us, but we can do it. The hard work is ahead of us, and we've got to get out and vote in November. That's extremely important. It's more important to me to get out in November than in the presidential election because that's the local, and that's where a lot of things hit. So please get out and vote in November. Steve, thank you so very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. (laughs) And keep up the good work, sir. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Everybody else, we'll see you next Thursday. Please, this week, have and live work cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 14th.